fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. We're in the Porter's 10Cast Studio. We have the pleasure again today. Patrick Edwards is joining me. Hello, everybody. And Dan Thompson is back today, and we're going to talk about wolves. Yeah. (laughs) It's the deplorable word. If you've ever read the Narnia series and you read the first book, they talk about the deplorable word. That is the deplorable word around here, I guess, would be wolves. Because you have, what, two sides? and We've got Little Red Riding Hood that's been (laughs) rewritten, and the first time the wolf was the, the, the villain, and the next time the wolf's the hero. So we got Dan here to try and muddy the water a little more, maybe. Uh, or clear, clear it up. It. We use the term damn wolves. It's just easier that way for everything. We're, we, we appreciate you coming back, and we're, we're excited about this. So just, just a quick refresher on, you know, let our, our guests know where you're from, your, your background, and why you're here. Sure. Uh, how in-depth? Oh, just the where cliff are you from? Quick, so Yeah, where are you from? from? Well, I grew up in Iowa. I haven't lived there since I was 18, but uh, grew up on a farm and midwest and uh grew up like a lot of kids hunting fishing trapping and uh, that's kind of where i got my love of the outdoors and decided i wanted to work with wildlife at a young age and went to school for it and was lucky enough to actually get a job in the profession because it is it is difficult um bounced around a lot and worked on everything from field mice to wild turkeys to elk deer and then the, the carnivores that I work with now. What's, what's your education in? Uh, wildlife and fishery sciences. Uh, so I have an, an MS and a PhD in that. Yep. And you told me before that growing up, you used to like to fish quite a bit and catch pike and different yeah, things like that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I, so I grew up in, in northwest Iowa, which is pretty flat, <laughs> but uh, there's actually pretty tremendous fishery there. It's around the, they call it the Great Lakes and Okaboji, they're spring-fed lakes, and uh, there's a, actually a great muskie fishery there. Uh, there's there's northern pike everywhere. That's what I really enjoyed. You know, they're a very uh, adaptable fish. They can live in a lot of different, different constraints, and uh, some of the smaller, more marshy-like lakes, I like to be able, I like to fish those, and I always liked fishing for northern just because they, they fight so much, mm-hmm. and, and they're not as finicky as, like, you have one month to catch them. Um, you can still catch them throughout the year. Everything slows down in the middle of the summer, of course. But uh, uh, but they, uh, they're they really fun fish to catch and a fun fish to eat. Talked mm-hmm. about that before. I think people are intimidated by the Y bones for some reason, but mm-hmm. it's not too hard to get them out. And, um, yeah, and they're good. Uh, I like, like them fried, but they're really good uh, pickling fish. If you've ever had, like, pickled Pickled Northern is a big thing, and I, that's really good. I had a friend from Minnesota. That's what he used to do is all of his pike. He yeah. just pickled it up, and it's pretty good. Yeah, a lot of people do it that way. Yep. I like to fry it up. It's almost like steak. It's a lot more firm than like a walleye yeah, or a bluegill yeah. or something like that, which are a lot more flaky. You know, you can take a pike, and it, it's pretty firm stuff. But the the kind of the funny thing, the parallel between pike and wolves is they they call the pike the wolf of the freshwater wolves, yep. yeah mm. because they prey on anything that they can get pretty much there's yeah that's pretty good pretty analogous <laughs> to the other one i mean they're, they're like a, a four-legged wolf uh they're they're very efficient and good at what they do and 
and they can change the dynamics of, of what's going on in the landscape like a wolf can. Yep, absolutely. So we brought you in to talk about these wolves, mm-hmm. again, the deplorable word, but, um, you know, I've always said it's kind of like talking politics at the Thanksgiving table. People don't like to talk about wolves either, just because there's typically two very polarized sides on yeah. the issue. You either love them a whole bunch or you really don't like them. And so there's not a whole lot of in between. And what I want to get to um, with you is just kind of talking about the science side of it. And what you've experienced, because I think that a lot of people just kind of run with their opinions, but their opinions may be based off of a Facebook post or an article they read somewhere, but from somebody who doesn't actually handle the animal, doesn't actually study the animal, and you do work with the animals. So I'm more interested to find out just kind of a little bit more about it. And I know you work with a lot of different large carnivores. Um, So tell us just a little bit about how it works working with wolves, kind of some of the day-to-day things that you guys deal with. Sure. And and I mean, I think I'll go back to something you said. Uh, I think if, at least with everything I've worked with, nothing is as polarized as it is with wolves. Um, pure idolatry to pure hatred and not a lot in between. There's some, uh, but, but there's, it's very polarized when it comes to wolves. And so uh, we, we try to work in the middle, of course, uh, that puts you in a tough position. Yeah, but I, you know that coming into the job. So um, you, that's where you know we rely on the facts and the data that we collect and what we know about the animal and honest about what we don't know. And so we, we try to do the best with the data we collect You know, on a day-to-day basis for wolves. Um, <clears throat> it's unique that, of course, we've kind of yo-yoed between federal protection and state management and back and forth and court cases later and millions of dollars given to NGOs later um, that we're managing the wolf. And so we're still in an oversight period. And so we have to monitor them more heavily than we would other populations. I mean, grizzly bears is another instance. You know, we got a lot of collars on grizzly bears. We got a lot of collars on wolves. Uh, I hope that's not something in perpetuity, but that right now that's our go-to method for understanding wolves. And so we try to... Excuse me. We try to maintain a, a collar in each pack in the in northwest part of the state in the trophy game management area. In fact, right now uh, we have operations going on in Cody uh, helicopter. We do most of our captures through helicopter. It's just more efficient, and uh, it's actually for bang for your buck. You can catch a lot more wolves and trying to trap them, especially in grizzly bear country in the summer. And so uh, you know we try to maintain collars in those packs, and that gap really gives us insight into the pack dynamics and their overall territories and, and where they range. And then, you know, honestly, wolves are, when you have a collar in a pack, or even if you don't with snow and the ability to get up in the air and on the ground, either skiing or putting cameras out, you can really get a good count on them. Now, I know a lot of people don't trust it. It's either we're way too low or way too high, but but we're confident in those numbers that we collect on wolves in the in that trophy game area where we manage four wolves. So, so is, it, is that something you typically do from an aircraft in in the wintertime? I, I, I've seen some videos and different things of, you know, population surveys. Is that something you're mostly doing from aircraft then? Yeah, and, and again, you know, we, we, we really aren't up in the air. Well, we're, we are somewhat, but we contract a lot of that out to a very – a great pilot that we use that, that gets those counts for us. We're following up on the ground as well. And so uh, we do a lot of ground reconnaissance, like after after 
they have their after they whelp after they have their pups and try to get those counts of pups because that's important. We do that from the air and the ground, and uh, and we we're not flying all fall because there's hunters in the field. So obviously we don't want to be up there disrupting somebody who's out enjoying what Wyoming has to offer. And then I got I got a comment on that this year. I I was working a a herd bull in the wilderness and a helicopter flew over when I was 55 yards away and that, that herd bull left and I wasn't very happy. It wasn't us. (laughs) I know it wasn't you. So I got one other question, just not, not to back up, but you know, you, you mentioned that you grew up trapping. Have you, you know, transition some of those skills into your job now did that lead into because i i trapped when i was a young yeah. man too yeah i mean we actually do a lot of trapping for for the animals we work with with bears wolves and lions and so i think that skill set comes into play in order to help you understand the animal and help you capture the animal as well yes as a biologist and as, as a trapper as a young man do you look at the terrain and the species a little different than say just a a, a normal person i yeah, I don't know what a normal person is, but yeah, I think, I think just, I, w- I would hope I'm looking at the, and in fact, the, nobody likes going on a hike with me because the whole time I'm looking for tracks and slow and looking for things going on the ground and trying to read the substrate and mm-hmm. read what's going on. So I, I do, I definitely look at the, look at the train differently than I guess someone who's, who's not, um, who's not trained in that or just. Some people comes instinctually, but uh, I, I do definitely look at the ground differently than others, I guess. So we have the the, the lion's share of the, the greater Yellowstone National ecosystem mm-hmm. in, in our state. So you guys kind of have a pretty big playground as far as these large carnivores. And, you know, you get to do, do some cool data and study. And, I mean, yep. this correlation, It's we're just still learning, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about it in the previous podcast we did that uh, – you know, we're talking since the mid '90s that they were introduced into the park, and then since they have expanded, that's a, that's a less than a blink of an eye in the overall evolutionary time scale, and uh, and so we're really learning a lot more about the dynamics between predator prey. Uh, we're unique in that we have a intact large carnivore guild, we call it, which means the same the same carnivores are here now that were ten thousand years ago before the the change in the Pleistocene, and so. Uh, but they weren't for a long time, and our our predator our prey populations have changed through to, to through time, and so now we're we're trying to get a better understanding of those dynamics on the ground as they as they occur, and and the fact that humans are part of the landscape too. Uh, we hear that from a lot of people that they were here first, and um, you know leave them alone, all these things, but. Our job is to, you know, our motto is conserving wildlife, serving people. And I think to take human beings out of the landscape as a viable option is not, it's pretty, it's not a very good way to think uh, about it. We can that. touch on, you know, just a mental exercise of, you know, Australia had some negative consequences of, you know, trying to arbitrarily in, introduce one species or another or trying to, oh, yeah. you, know, you know, there's a whole bunch of examples there and we won't get into it. But another one is, buffalo if we were to say hey we need to have the buffalo back to peak levels before humans were you know you can't keep buffaloes in in anything but like a railroad fence i mean they they go where they want to could you imagine if we had ten thousand buffalo running across i-80 yeah i mean mean, it's it's unrealistic to think that we can go back in time i mean (laughs) we were just i was just at a meeting in cheyenne and, and we're always dealing with these issues and 
I have a field journal I keep with me all the time, and I, I got to realizing my fix for so many things is time machine. <laughs> it's <laughs> the only way you can fix something, you know. But it's it's I think. I think we're, we have the cards dealt in front of us with what's going on, and we're fortunate enough to have such an amazing wildlife resource currently in Wyoming because of maintaining much of the habitat that was there. But that also means that there's people that live there. There's there's a livestock industry. There's hunters. There's there's uh, photographers. There's ecotourism. All of those things are part of it, and they're not mutually exclusive. And and that's why our job is to to better understand the the management and conservation of these animals, especially an animal like a wolf that is very controversial, that does change the dynamics of its prey from what it was 30 years ago. And there's obviously <coughs> unintended consequences when we middle with one thing, another thing happens somewhere else, right? Sure. Whether we arbitrarily raise species quotas or numbers yeah, or whatever. Everything is very interrelated. And, and you know, what? it's the dynamics of our profession has changed from more single species management, which we still do, but, but it's so intricately web, this intricate web of how things are connected and, and uh, it makes it difficult, but not impossible. And so that's what we try to do for our management. And so the wolves are here. We have to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not going anywhere. They're here now. Right. But one thing I want to touch on a little bit is moose recruitment in, you know, within part of that greater Yellowstone National, you know, and, and we, we've touched on a little bit. It's not so much wolf predation. What What's going on with the moose population? There's a there? lot of things going on with, with moose, and I'm definitely not a moose expert, um, but the carotid worms, habitat changes, changes just through climate over, you know, eons. It, it's always fluctuating, but we're at the southern edge of, of their distribution, so uh, they're, they're, I think there are more subtle changes. <clears throat> they're more... Um, they're not less adaptable, but these subtle changes can impact them more. And so we've definitely seen a decline in moose and in, in, in throughout a lot of the West. Uh, but then when you add uh, predation, it can become additive. And so, you know, there's, it's, yeah, you can't blame it all on wolves for sure. But when you get a population small enough that, that the, predate, the predation is taking away some of that recruitment, and then that's where, that's what we realize looking at things whether predation or hunting or anything is additive or compensatory to what's being produced out there. And that's what we see in some of these smaller moose herds that with, and not just wolves, but all the carnivores in the landscape where that predation can become limiting. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point too, is that, I mean, even if we're talking sheep, okay, sheep are pretty, pretty volatile in their population swings right now, just because of, you know, they, they're susceptible to pneumonia and different things like that. We have to be really careful with what cards are being dealt and what's being yeah. put into the system. And I, I know that's been one of the big um, concerns from people is that you, know, you have wolves, wolves coming in, so moose populations are going down. If they ever do establish a good population near sheep, they're, they're very good at catching sheep. And so I know that's been a big concern for a lot of people here in Wyoming, you know, being a native Wyoming guy. Um, Back in the back in the '90s, being around all of the debates and hearing all the cases for and against, um, but I I think it's you know David hit it on the head. They're here. They're here. Yeah. You know that battle. You know whichever side you were on was fought back in the mid '90s. That battle's over. Now it's how do we manage what we have 
and still try to maintain, you know, for the rancher, he, he wants to maintain his herds yep. and he's going to have predation. That's just going to happen. Um, you know, the hunters now they have an opportunity to kill wolves. So there's lots of different factors at play. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you said now we have all of the players, all the big carnivores back in the, in the system. One of the big criticisms I've heard, and I want you to speak to this from a scientific standpoint is, um, one of the big things that said is that the wolves now are much bigger than the wolves that were killed off in the 18 and 1900s through the federal program. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. The non-native Canadian wolves is what they're generally brought up as. And so um, it, it's very, again, it's a very uh, a passionate discussion when it comes to these from from more of more so two angles uh, than multiple angles. But uh, that, and I'm going to back up a little bit. <clears throat> um, I think a lot of the the sentiment that that gets people going is that these wolves were brought back versus naturally came back. Uh, we've seen mountain lions naturally reestablished in the Black Hills. Now, not that that wasn't controversial. It's a lot different than bringing them in and saying they're going to be here. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a, a big issue with that, 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 you know, you said you were part of the Wolf Wars and, um, and there's a lot of people that that's, they're never going to forget that. And I understand that. I mean, that's human psyche. That's being told that you're going to, this is going to happen. And then also being told we're going to put them here, but it's not going to impact you. But then 10 years later, it is impacting you. you know, and to, to the point of, you know, to, to come to maybe the rancher's defense a little bit, it was like, we come to the negotiation table. This is going to be a viable minimum quota we achieve that benchmark and then, Oh, we're going to move the, yeah. move the bar again and move the bar again. And we're never going to concede. And that that's caused a lot of hard feelings. Oh, absolutely. And I, I understand that. I mean, we're working with, with ranchers every day. We're, we're working with all the interested parties, whether they're pro or anti wolf. And so, uh, you know, that's what we do every day. And, and the big issue there is that, uh, you know, it's a different subspecies and there was rumors of remnant wolves potentially still in the GYE. And, but we it couldn't be proven. And when the wolves were brought in to Yellowstone and the Idaho wilderness, they were actually as far ranging south as there's the farthest south ranging wolf subspecies that were there that were also keying in on elk, which was the goal. Uh, from a body size standpoint, they're within 10 pounds difference. So they're not three times bigger or anything like that. But it's the notion of, you know, it's it's a it's a hypothesis well that's not Bergman's rule basically as you go further north in latitude animals get bigger and that's proven uh but but there was no notion of going up and getting like these super super giant wolves and bringing them here to wreak havoc it was more to bring wolves as close to what was here and put them in and of course I wasn't part of that but mm-hmm. that was the notion is to bring in these wolves because and did it preyed primarily on elk because that was what the goal was and to bring that back to the way it was well and that was one of the biggest issues back then you know living through it was that we were told they're going to stay on the park yep. and i was like okay you guys are telling well, us what a is lie the home range of they, a wolf yeah i mean they do well, what they want yeah and it's not so much the home range you know territory sizes differ um some are pretty big but it's the the dispersal potential is huge we talked about this in the previous one with lions too uh, and it's very much so the same with wolves i mean we had a collared wolf uh, west of cody that showed up in colorado a couple years ago 
we had a collared wolf on uh, the Absorcas that showed up in the Grand Canyon. So they have that ability to disperse. And as their population, uh, as their population density increases, they're going to keep expanding. And it's typically that, that teenage male that's the, the yeah. one out mm-hmm. dispersing, yeah. right? Yeah, and of course, you know, pack dynamics are, are very interesting in wolves and in that you have an alpha pair in their pups and then you have subordinates that stay part of that for a while and you have packs that get get to get really big, but then they usually disperse and break up and start new packs and that's where we see a lot of those dynamics happen and wolves expanding. And yeah, and to think that they're going to stay in one spot without human intervention is is not very realistic so and i just want to touch on this just for you know the people that are listening to this just remember you know these were things that were told to us and you know our game and fish department they they kind of had all this dropped in their lap and so people like dan they they get to deal with the aftermath Mm -hmm. and the fallout and you know they're they're doing the best they can to manage these animals now with what they've been given and the rules and the parameters in which that they have so I just want folks to remember that because, I mean, you guys catch a lot of flack that I don't think is fair. I mean, you know, you weren't responsible for bringing them in the first place, but you're trying to do a good job of managing the species that we have here now and within the means and constraints of the law. Correct. Yep. And I mean, there's still, you know, the the Endangered Species Act is Mm -hmm. still at play and we have to maintain a certain number on the landscape so we don't go back again, to uh, a threatened population or endangered population that would have more federal oversight. And <clears throat> so, uh, again, we're obviously, the the biology and the science of, of behind the management is the easy part. Mm-hmm. It's the, the trying to manage expectations and the reality of the social and public atmosphere where it's not difficult, but it's just you have to realize that coming into it that, that, you're never gonna pl- never gonna please any everybody. A lot mm. of times you're gonna kind displease. Of, yeah, most actually because um, there's like you mentioned there, there's some people that that basically that say that they experiment. If the experiments failed, it's time to get rid of them, and that's it's not a realistic option, quite honestly. But there's also people that say if you have wolves, it, everything's fixed, you know, and rainbows and puppy dogs and everything and it's not it's not like that either um we're we're dealing with a landscape that that while yes we have an amazing wilderness landscape that's largely intact there's still like i said before humans are on the landscape they're part of it too Uh, we're promoting multi-use and nothing has to be mutually exclusive we can hunt wolves and people can still take pictures of wolves it doesn't have to be one or the other and I would I want to advocate for that as as a father, you know, and having been out and heard and witnessed and seen wolves, they're a cool creature, right? Sure, absolutely. But on the other side of it, as a hunter and a conservationist, I want to be able to manage the wolf through the tools that we have that we are proven, you know, with the North American wildlife model mm-hmm. that work. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think um, even you know, and that's something even under federal protection. Um, they were still managed. Uh, the year they went back, uh, back to relisted because of a lawsuit. The following year, there was over 110 wolves killed for livestock depredation, and, I, and I we want, don't want that. We're down to more like to to double digit lower numbers now, and that's what we want. I mean, so and I I, I don't want to gloss over that. I really want to touch on that a little bit more. Is 
you know, the, the year that we had a wolf hunt and the, the hunters, the conservationists paid into conservation, that money went into, you know, the kitty that funds you, but also funds schools, also funds roads, right? And hunters got to go out and help harvest some of those wolves. Mm -hmm. And then the problem wolves, you, you guys obviously were called in to deal with. Yeah. But the year that it got shut down because we need to save the wolves, right? That year we harvested just about as many wolves, but instead of the hunters doing it in the field, you know, Game and Fish yeah. came in and did it on damage. Yeah, and and um, and, you know, we work with Wildlife Services, who does a lot of that work. And and I actually had a person um, tell me to my face that I would rather a hundred wolves die at the hands of you guys than one ever die from a hunter. Why do you and think that is? I don't want to talk about human emotions and psychology, <laughs> but I think uh, there there's just there's certain people that that really disagree with. Uh, the notions of, of hunting a wolf or certain animals. So back yeah. to the science of it, mm -hmm. you know, and something that I'm curious about is the uh, correlation between wolves and elk and now the, uh, you know, the coming science that we're seeing this, you know, chronic wasting disease coming. And we've heard of a report of an elk that's actually contracted it. Is is there a correlation? I'm, I'm well, curious. So there is a lot of information out there, but there is not, very much science out there. So are we Put working it on way. it then? Sure. We're always trying to understand those things better. Um, and I think that there's not any, there's, there's a new thought out there that wolves actually would spread CWD because of their long range movements. Um, but the prevailing notion that I hear a lot from people that is you need wolves to control CWD. And the notions behind that is because they're going to seek out the more vulnerable in those animals. But there's not actually any, there's no science behind that. I'm not saying it does or doesn't exist, but we don't have any irrefutable or we don't have any evidence as to what level that actually impacts prevalence. And that's what we're trying to better understand. We're trying to do some work with mountain lions and deer as well to try to understand. Um, again, it's not a black and white thing. And we, we're trying to understand the intricacies of, you know, was that predation limiting? Are they selecting? And if they are selecting, does it impact prevalence? Those are the things that, that we want to know better. And I think some people, when, when you hear that, we're trying to understand that. They think it's a one-day study. We're going to look at, we're going to yeah. take a sample. We're going to do a culture, and then we'll have the answer. And this is takes generations and tons of data collection. You've got to compile it all and then maybe see a correlation. Right? Well, hopefully we see causation. Okay. Uh, but, but, I mean, you said it the nice way. We just said, no, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and or why are you waffling? Why won't you answer the questions? Because some of these questions we don't have the answer to yet. And CWD is is one, CWD is a tough one. You know, we've been Wyoming was at, is at the forefront of trying to understand CWD, but we're talking about a a prion which is a folded protein which is not. It's a weird little being in and of itself, and trying to understand even how it's transmitted on the landscape is difficult. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're moving ahead trying to better understand now the, the predator component as well. Yeah, and I want to get back to predation. Mm -hmm. So what is the typical diet of a wolf? And can you talk about, you know, on average, how many elk are they feeding on per year sure. right now? Sure, it depends on pack size, obviously. Uh, but in, in, in Wyoming, elk is the predominant food source for, for wolves. And what you'll see is an average of, like one elk per month for an adult animal. And, uh, and it varies with pack size as well. And that's an adult, uh, I should say, but, um, 
you know, I could tease it down to actual biomass. I don't have that in front of me. But, uh, what, again, what we're looking at is, is there an area where we're seeing limitation from a population standpoint on prey? And we've definitely got a few areas where uh, we're seeing reduced cow-calf ratios, uh, where we have higher densities of wolves and, and larger pack size. And so there is a direct correlation with uh, a certain density as you get above a certain pack size and density of wolves is when you start to see a reduction in cow-calf ratios. They and can so be more are, successful if they have a large yeah, pack. Yeah, exactly. And then they need mm-hmm. to feed more mouths. So you got to take more, and it's easy to take down a calf in the winter. And so there, there's there's prevailing literature out there that, that we look at, and we've got multiple we're involved in a couple studies right now trying to better understand that in the Cody region and the Jackson region, some of those. And we've been looking pretty closely at those cow-calf ratios and dynamics with wolves from a, starting with a correlative standpoint, now trying to move to a causation standpoint to what are all the different factors that, that impact it. Sure. And what else do they eat? I mean, it, I'm sure they eat other things other than elk and sure, deer. Uh, so. they, they eat deer, uh, moose, um, but that's the prime, and then small things. Of course, they eat lots of. In the summer, they'll eat. They'll, uh, I was gonna say lagomorphs. They'll, <laughs> they'll eat uh, rabbits and smaller size prey. Of course, whatever's available. Uh, but we definitely see elk as the big one, and and moose where they can get them too. Yeah, and obviously they're going to prefer to use their energy on something a lot bigger because it lasts mm-hmm. them a lot longer. Yeah, and again, it's it's about. Um, I always hear this: they only pick the weak and the old. And it's they pick the vulnerable. Sometimes that's a weaker and old. Sometimes that's a bull moose that just got done rutting. Sometimes that's whatever in deep snow. It's vulnerable, not just the weak and the old they take. So that I mean, on that same one, and trying to stay away from psychology, but there's this pretty high level production quality film that came out a while ago about tropic cascades, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not asking you to credit or discredit it, but, you know, obviously tropic cascades can exist and happen. Mm -hmm. But in this film, the way it's depicted, I I, I think they're using some pseudoscience. Sure. And anytime a film is used to depict science, I get a little worried (laughs) because I prefer peer-reviewed literature. Uh, But, you know, in the GYE, it's interesting because there was uh, a paper that was talking about aspen regeneration and things like that, and trophic cascades that when wolves came back. Now, obviously, you're going to see changes when you had a way too high of a density of elk population and they're brought down. You're going to see changes in the landscape. But actually, the Wyoming co-op, who was working directly in the in the park and in the GYE, actually wrote a paper to refute that. That was peer-reviewed. And I, I sat on a panel with a couple of people on trophic cascades in, in uh, Laramie, and... Um, so there's a situation in Canada where they did document trophic cascades through, you know, it was a uh, caribou and, and wolves and, and changes on the landscape. <clears throat> and uh, what happens then is people latch onto that. And this is the way it has to be everywhere. And like when the first paper came out in Yellowstone, um, that was, you know, here it is. Now we have our proof that wolves fix everything. And then when a paper came out that refuted it, from Wyoming, I, I know the co-op leader, he said he was getting like hate mail and all these people. How could you do this? I thought you were one of us and things like that. So I'm, I'm a scientist. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm telling you what the truth is and not everything is black and white. You, you, you touched on it earlier. It's, it's emotion gets involved with this charismatic megafauna, right? Mm-hmm. If we were talking about, you know, it's, and 
we've touched on this on the podcast before, but if I go fishing and, and I, I hold a picture of a dead fish up with a hook in its mouth, which is a kind of a brutal way to go if you think about it. You know, no one, no, no one, no one gets mad about that, right? Yeah. If I go shoot a turkey and you, no one, no one's getting mad at me, right? Deer and elk, people are kind of like, well, Bambi, but I, I guess it's food yeah. and it's normal. But all of a sudden we move into these large carnivores and, you know, I've seen several hunters just, I mean, lose businesses and lives and, I mean, it's getting death threats. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's unfortunate. And again, I, I think I always say I'm, f- we are fortunate and that we have people that are passionate about these animals, but it goes to another level as you, as you mentioned. And, and it's hard because a person should be able to be proud of legally harvesting an animal, but boy, you put up, I mean, we had that on our website when the game and fish website, you know, send in your hunting pictures for kids. And this kid sent in a picture of his first black bear and all of a sudden, people are like on Facebook calling him murderer and stuff like that. And it's, well, I just I want to bring up the way. point that you know, and that this is a little off, but the, the wolf story should be kind of the crowning jewel of you know the Endangered Species Act. They were they were gone. They were mm-hmm. they were diminishing. They've got this federal protection. It's now lifted. It should we you know everybody should be celebrating together that hey they are restored on the landscape and they're manageable. But instead, we've got to have this visceral reaction fight visceral is a good word yes and that i I don't know that that'll go away with wolves quite honestly i mean just because of the the notions you have people that were involved from the get-go like you were Mm -hmm. that were there but you also have um wolves bring with them a notion of wilderness and uh they're also as you said charismatic megadrama megafauna that was my (laughs) joke uh when I was in grad school working on mountain lions at the time, that was the megafauna in the Dakotas. And my, I had a friend who was a fisheries guy that renamed it charismatic megadrama, which is true. And so, um, you just, you see these things happening and it, it's just, it's unfortunate that it has to get to that level that it, it's just human emotions, but you have these people that were involved from the get go. And honestly, the, with social media and, uh, social media is great for multiple things. It, it it brings people together from all across the world, but it also brings people in from all across the world that that have no context to the reality of what's happening on the ground. Everybody has a voice, though, now. So and that's what we see a lot with, with carnivores. In, in a day-to-day motivation with, with wolves, you're out there just trying to collect data. You're trying to, you know, work within the, the legal parameters yeah. you've been given to maintain quota levels right yeah our job is to maintain wolves on the landscape above those uh those recovery criteria and also a primary component of our job is conflict management with with Mm -hmm. carnivores you have to be very proactive in dealing with conflict and with wolves we're primarily talking with livestock depredation and so we have a very active program to to try to alleviate that through multiple methods um through non-lethal through education and and also through lethal if it if it needs to be done and all that's factored into the, our overall objectives and how we set our harvest limits. And I think and if you look at a map of Wyoming and you one one of the the linchpins was that uh, predator zone yeah. versus trophy yep. game and but if you look at a map of the state and you look at how that's drawn it, it actually makes a ton of sense to me just if you were were to look yeah, at yeah I mean it was chosen based on the the most wilderness area and the less the least potential for 
getting into trouble. If, if a pack of wolves gets out around Laramie or Cheyenne, I mean, it's not going to be very long until they're getting in trouble out there. Oh yeah, honestly, in in those in those more agricultural landscapes, um, it it, it it's usually just a matter of time. Yeah, I oh. mean, it's again, we talked about this before. It's obtuse to think that well, they were here five hundred years ago. Sure, they were, but the landscape was a lot different five hundred years ago, yeah. and we can't. We we're we're doing. We should, like you said, we should focus on the success of. We can still have all these things on the landscape, and and pretty much acting pretty naturally in, in certain areas. But we can't promoting them everywhere. It actually isn't beneficial for the long term viability of the species either. And I mean, it, let's let's zoom out a little bit. You know, look at this and from a global aspect, right? Yeah. You know, we you look at the black rhino in Africa yeah. or several deer species in Asia or we I mean we can go I can pick all the way around sure. the globe and look at they're gone. Yeah. Right? Or they're leaving and there's no coming back and the the people are now here and the people are requiring the land space and you're not gonna you and I are not gonna reverse that. So to kind of have this feather in our cap, if I will, of hey, the wolves are back here. They're they're sustainable. They're manageable, and we get to hunt them. That that should be, yeah. you know, as far as conservation, we really should be celebrating that. Yeah, and that we can react based on data to better manage our wolves and and everything to to benefit to make sure the prey populations are also healthy. To make sure there is mm-hmm. a harvestable resource there to make sure that people can take pictures of wolves, take pictures of elk, that kids can enjoy the outdoors. And, um, I mean, if you, if you take away the, the, the polarity and like you said, the visceral notions that, that surround, especially wolves, it's actually pretty manageable. I mean, we can talk about it. A, A mouse has eyes, brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidney, right? Same thing that a wolf does, same thing as an elephant have. It's it's this people attach emotion to this one animal. But Absolutely. Sure. I mean, I, I think there's a, like I said, alluded to earlier, um, there is a notion of wilderness when it comes to a wolf. And I think, um, and yeah, they are a charismatic animal. And and they, they've been portrayed multiple ways. I mean, we all grew up with the big bad wolf. And, uh, and I think it's good that they're not viewed, that that's changed, that they're just an animal. Uh, but there's a lot of people that really, I don't know if it's self-guilt that they're no longer in touch with, with what the world is, that, 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 that they choose the wolf as this is, that's what this I've is noticed. my shining beacon of protecting this animal in order to show that I'm still part of the, the, the reality of the landscape. And that, that's okay, but they need to have, I mean, people need to have context of what a wolf or what, what any of these animals are and are not. I mean, I get to see them from their their most noble and beautiful circumstances to their most savage and and negative circumstances, and then, and they're not they're like I, like we said they're not the idols or they're not the demons that they're made out to be. They're a wolf. And you know, this social experiment called you know civilization is really kind of a new thing, right? <laughs> Where we can get on Amazon, I can go to the grocery store, I can get my food prepared and I never have to go outside and actually immerse myself in nature and go catch a walleye or go yeah. harvest a pheasant and go clean it. I mean, even, even our, our farm life of 200 years ago where you, you were raised on a farm, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you butchered a pig and you got the chicken eggs and that, that life's gone away. And I've noticed the people who, 
you know, are the most outspoken about, you know, towards anti-hunting, anti-fishing, any, any of that, they don't participate in any nature at all on, on almost any level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I would say, you know, it's really cool to go out and hear a pack of, of wolves howl. I've, I've been there. It's, it's an intense reaction. There's, there's very few things in the, in the wild that I've heard yeah. that make my That's hair true. stand up yeah. on the back of my neck, like that, that deep, lonesome, it's very melancholy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you touched on something that was big when we were going through this war of, you know, bringing wolves back or not. I was in the camp of, you know, I really didn't care for the idea just because I knew based on the premise of what we were being told that wasn't going to happen. Um, and it was a lot of it was being perpetuated by people who don't live in Wyoming and they don't recreate here. They don't go hunting. They don't do these things. And then they're going to tell us how to do everything and we should be doing this we should be doing that i think one of the biggest things that makes this so polarizing is that you have a wolf doing exactly what it should do what do wolves do they predate they eat things that's that's what they're made for and they're cruel about it yeah. oh, let's not let's not and butter they, you know, let's they, not sugarcoat they, this it's brutal and but they'll say the same you know these folks will say the same thing about grizzly bears you know you can't harvest grizzly bears you can't do this because they're you know they're a beautiful majestic animal well i would challenge folks if if we were to go in that time machine you talked about and we were to put grizzly bears back on the prairies in different places where all these people live now i don't think they'd like it a whole lot <laughs> having grizzly bears out with their kids you know or their pets or or whatever it may be so i think it's it's again one of these issues where People need to understand that they're here. We're managing them the best we can. There's human beings with kids and with families that are trying to do their best, yep. you know, in, in doing this. And I, I go to public meetings occasionally. I try not to go as often anymore because I do get a little upset. But, you know, the game and fish department gets made out to be the bad guy when they're not. You know, On either side. Yeah, they're, they're trying to do the best they can with what they have. You know, we have this resource now. Um, hunters should be excited. Now they can go kill a wolf, you know, in the lower 48 and they can kill pretty good size ones. I've seen some good size ones killed. Sure. Um, but I just hope that people understand that um, the people who are doing this work and doing the science behind it are not the bad guys and that they're, they're really doing the best they can with an animal that is, it's just doing what it's made yeah. to do. That's what they're made to do. They're made to kill stuff. So there was a, uh, you know, there's been a, one wolf predation on humans that I, I can recall. It was in Alaska up on the peninsula with a jogger. Another one what, in Canada, yeah. What would you say, I mean, as far as just recreating in, in the GYE or even, you know, the winds or whatever, as far as just wolf-human interaction kind of, what 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 are some... Yeah, like, it's extremely rare. Um, until recent history, there was never a documented case of a wolf attacking or killing a person. Um, but <clears throat> you know, in the situation in there's a, a person killed in Canada that was a habituated wolf, and so and, and you know the same thing we preach with bears that they're a wild animal, and you got to treat them as such. And I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's harder to feed a wolf, but than it is to feed a bear. I would argue, I guess, but uh, that's what happened to the to the individual in in Canada, and uh, it's about understanding the the potential with these animals and treating them as a wild animal. Um, they're not a Disney movie and they're not, they're not just a roadside attraction. Uh, they're a wild animal. And even if they do get, if you have one that gets habituated to people, there's a threshold you'll cross. 
as like if you're taking pictures or something. If you get too close, it's going to be too close. And so for the most part, wolves are going to leave people alone. Um, but again, <clears throat> you know, if you come face to face with a wolf, you got to let it know what you are, that you're dominant and keep it in front of you. Don't run. And you know, with the, with any of these animals, you have the absolute ability to protect yourself by any means necessary. If you feel threatened, um, I'm a huge proponent of carrying bear spray more so for like moose <laughs> than, <laughs> than about anything, but there's I mean, more people it, in Alaska every year that are. Yeah, injured by moose true yeah. yeah and so i mean uh, it's, it's really <laughs> rare with wolves i mean we promote awareness we've got information on uh that on our website we'll be coming around the state every spring doing safety workshops but uh <clears throat> but yeah it's basically letting the animal know that you're a human and uh, where we see issues is like um uh, people that are calling elk or something and have a pack of wolves come in on them and that's going to be intimidating of course but uh, it, it's really rare to have an actual aggressive wolf encounter and if you do we want to know about it obviously now one thing i would say is you know just from my limited knowledge and experience wolves do not tolerate other canines in their territory yeah that's a great point um and that's one thing that's very different um, as far as a safety standpoint is that they will go out of the way to kill a wolf they're territorial or sorry to kill a dog a domestic dog and so it's important to um to, to have control of your dogs and um, I'm, I've had them come in on lion hounds before and so uh, you just th- that is something that you have to be very aware of if you're recreating in the back country a lot of people have dogs and then they know what they're doing and so a lot of times they're a good indicator of what's around but um, where we do see some issues is wolf killing domestic dogs sure yeah definitely don't tie Fido to the camper when you're elk hunting and leave no because Fido may not be there True. when you get back yep um, they just do what they do, you know, they're protecting their territory and, and they do like to eat. Yeah. So, yeah. well, again, Dan, we really appreciate you coming in and taking the time. Sure. Um, I just encourage everybody again, uh, make sure to, you know, if you want to talk to these guys, talk to them, but I do encourage you to do it respectfully. They're working really hard. They're doing a good job. And, um, we do have a lot of great resources because of these guys. And, the, and there's also a whole bunch of studies and reports and multiple pages that go read the whole study before yeah. just the, the <laughs> Don't cliff just no read the headline. You know, and we'll be setting, you know, we're, we're, we're collecting our data this year for the, <clears throat> for our annual report. We do a report every year. And uh, yeah, I mean, just if you read our annual report or our management plan, it really goes into a lot of information about the history and, and how we got to where we're at. The, the numbers we use to set up the harvest, the hunting of wolves, and and it also goes into the other side of, you know, the, the damage that we see. And mm-hmm. and we we are, you know, we're always looking at, is there any uh, impacts to ungulates? It's all part of that. And we'll be setting those seasons coming up here in a few months. And so I encourage people, um, yeah, those are usually pretty intriguing <laughs> meetings to go to, the wolf season setting one. Uh, but it, they're informative, and uh, you know when we go through how we set them and the numbers we use to get to where we're at, it's actually very informative, and, it, and it, it's pretty it's pretty hard to argue with. This is our objective. This is why it is. This is how we got here, and this is our plan. So, so there is a chance for everyone to come have a voice. And, Absolutely. You know, and then I I want to say thank you for you know coming in, sure. being open, being transparent, and also you know being out there and and doing your job and collecting this data for us so that we can 
make better informed choices and decisions. I appreciate it. No, I'm, I'm, I got a great job. I'm not going to complain about that. So thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And now it's time for the Radcast Outdoors Recipe of the Week. Made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton business. Check out their latest seasonings at highmountainjerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. And use promo code HMS10. That's hms 10 for 10% off your next order, High Mountain Seasonings. If you're like me, one of my favorite foods is fried fish, especially fried walleye. Um, so this works with any kind of white meat fish that you have. So whether you caught walleye, perch, crappie, it doesn't really matter. Just make sure it's filleted out. You don't want any skin on there or any bones. Um, so the key ingredients to this, and it depends on how big of a batch you're making, but the key ingredients are saltine crackers, so what I do with those is I put them in the food processor and I grind them down kind of like to a panko kind of consistency or a breadcrumb consistency. Then you're going to want salt, pepper, paprika, um, or you can get the bio bass Western style seasoning from high mountain. It goes absolutely excellent inside of there. And so you're going to mix that together to the consistency that you want and the seasoning that you want for your breading. And then you're going to need egg and milk. And how this works is you get your fillets cleaned up, you put them in your wash. So that'll be a, com- a combination of like three or four eggs and a little bit of milk. You're going to want to get them from there and then transfer them into your breadcrumbs. And you're going to want to get those breadcrumbs packed on there pretty good. And then the way I like to cook my fish is I like to use a, uh, a deep fryer. I have one that's made specifically for fish. It's got two baskets on it and it's propane um, fired. And so what you do <clears throat> is you heat up your oil to between 300 and 350 degrees. I prefer peanut oil personally. You can use whatever you want. Um, a lot of people use canola. It doesn't really matter. Um, so you heat it up and then once you get it to that temperature, you'll be able to drop those fillets in there after you've breaded them properly, let them cook until they're golden brown. And then you pull those things up, drain them off really good, throw them on, you know, a platter and then just enjoy them. I'll tell you, there's nothing better than fried walleye. Radcast Outdoors is hosted by Patrick Edwards from Central Wyoming College in Riverton, Wyoming, and David Merrill from Recreational Archery Development and the Bow Spider. It's hosted and produced in the Porter's 10Cast Studios, made possible by Porter's Supply Company in Riverton, Wyoming. It's produced by me, Jared Anderson. To contact the show, email us, 10Cast at county10.com. As always, Radcast Outdoors is made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton, Wyoming company. Log on to highmountainjerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. And use promo code HMS10 for 10% off your next order. Follow Radcast Outdoors on Facebook. And for more Wyoming podcasts, follow 10Cast on Facebook. The best way to help the show is to subscribe, rate, review, and to share with a friend. David and Patrick are back next week for more Radcast Outdoors.